This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, November 23, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The outgoing Trump administration appears to be making more work for the incoming Biden team in the realm of foreign policy, in particular U.S. policy toward Iran. Cato's John Glazer explains why. You know, that kind of political strategy towards the end of a presidential administration is not all that uncommon. I think what's uncommon is that Trump is a, a lame duck president. He's on his way out. He lost the election. And he's rushing to implement all these policies in an attempt. Well, I think the motivations vary, actually. But uh, many of them do end up kind of um, sticking a wrench into uh, the Biden administration spokes um, in terms of their policy agenda. Um, that that kind of hasty, rushed um, effort, as we've seen in the past couple of uh, days and weeks, uh, is is less typical. I would say uh, it's it's more common for lame duck presidents after an election to try to hold steady and uh, perform a. Uh, a clean transition so that the new president can start fresh. Okay. What does that involve with respect to Iran and Yemen? Well, uh, amid the president's uh, kind of rapid set of uh, military decisions and orders in the past couple of days was, um, number one, a discussion he had with his top uh, security officials uh, asking for military options to strike Iran. Um, uh, this is reported as very unusual. It's unclear from the reports that whether or not these are just discussions about asking for contingency plans, uh, and uh, occasionally those need to be refreshed, and we have such plans all the time, whether or not the president asks for them. But the reporting suggests that other principal officials uh, in the cabinet pushed back against Trump's request to uh, see options to possibly strike Iran, including Vice President Pence and Secretary of State Pompeo, who tend to be more reliably hawkish than, than Trump is on these questions. So the report itself is a, is a little confusing, and I feel like we do not have the full story. The other thing that, the, that uh, Trump has ordered, or uh, seems to be impending to, to order, uh, is uh, officially designating the Houthi militant group in Yemen as an official uh, terrorist organization, according to the State Department. This is uh, particularly uh, uh, um, disappointing. Uh, just for a little background, for the past several years, really since 2015, so when Obama was still in office, Trump carried on this policy of enthusiastically supporting the Saudi Arabian regime as they ruthlessly bomb Yemen uh, and uh, blockade it and create what the United Nations has called the most acute man-made humanitarian crisis in the world in Yemen. The conflict there has, uh, has really ravaged the place. And we've supported that um, for some really bad strategic uh, reasons. These lists, this State Department list that designates certain groups terrorists uh, or terrorist organizations is a highly politicized activity. Go back to the 80s and uh, uh, Mandela's group was designated a terrorist group. Uh, the MEK, the Mujahideeni Kalk, was a, uh, an Iranian dissident group that used to engage in terrorism. They were for a long time considered 
uh, on this uh, list of designated terrorist groups at the end of the Obama administration for what seemed to me like purely political reasons they were taken off, right? So who's on this list and who is not is not indicative of who is who really counts as a quote, a quote unquote terrorist. They're highly politicized. But the effect of this designation will have real world consequences. First of all, it's very likely to disrupt the delivery of humanitarian aid to Yemen, which is absolutely crucial to relieve the human misery and suffering there. It'll also disrupt the ability to engage in negotiations, some kind of regional dialogue with Saudi Arabia and its its coalition and the parties in Yemen, possibly mediated by the Biden administration. It's not out of the realm of possibility that they would want to do something like this. And to do that negotiation, it's going to be very difficult because then you have to negotiate with a warring party that is a terrorist organization, the Houthis. And that makes it very, very difficult to find a negotiated solution to this conflict. And the last thing that it does is that it sort of, uh, it presents an obstacle to at least two of what uh, President-elect Biden, um, two of his policies, his planned policies. Uh, but one is to alter our relationship with Saudi Arabia, at least reevaluate the way in which we've been supporting their war in Yemen and maybe take a step back. And the whole Khashoggi affair is also wrapped up in that uh, potential policy change. And the other policy change is to re-enter the uh, nuclear agreement with Iran and engage in um, lots of diplomacy with them to try to settle our differences and back away from this war. The thing is, Iran supports the Houthis. And making that kind of change and engaging in that kind of diplomacy is going to be much more difficult if the Trump administration does indeed uh, designate the Houthis a terrorist group. What is the status of the Iran nuclear deal right now? I know that after the U.S. withdrew that it seemed to go on for a while. Where is it now? What is Iran's disposition with respect to that deal? So the Iranian nuclear deal, the Trump administration backed out of it unilaterally in 2018. Uh, up until that point, Iran had been fully compliant with all of the uh, regulations and stipulations of the agreement. They kept their uranium enrichment below a certain threshold. They kept their stockpile uh, below a certain limit. And they had daily inspections at all of their different sites around the country. We backed out of that in, uh, in 2018. And Iran's response was to make slow, gradual, calculated violations of the deal until, fast forward to today, they have 12 times as much uh, of a stockpile of enriched uranium than they did when the deal was active and the United States was a participant. So the deal right now is basically a, a zombie framework that is barely relevant to the situation, but everybody has been hoping that it can be kept alive despite Iranian violations and despite the United States backing out of it and violating the terms by imposing sanctions on Iran. You know, I think Europe and the other parties to the agreement wanted to wait until a new administration and possibly re-enter the agreement. So, I mean, the maximum pressure policy against Iran, the uh, total sanctions and economic warfare and um, assassinating one of their top military officials, imposing such a level of economic uh, uh, disruption that it's harming mostly ordinary Iranians and actually empowering the regime. This has failed across the board. Iran has become more belligerent in the region, not less in response to United States aggression. They've increased and expanded their nuclear program in the absence of the nuclear deal. Uh, as was predicted, the maximum pressure policy just failed. And so now this sort of uh, 
tantrum with only a few weeks left to go in, in the Trump administration of requesting options to bomb Iran and potentially sort of stir up more war talk. I mean, I don't know who that helps and I don't know whose interest it's in, but it's certainly not in the interest of the United States. If I follow the Trump administration policy of maximum pressure with respect to Iran, uh, it doesn't seem to have worked out uh, whatever the goals were. I, 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 it doesn't appear that any of them were met. No, none of them. I mean, if you take the, the goals as stated, that they were the real goals, they wanted to coerce Iran into agreeing to more concessions than they agreed to under the Obama administration. So basically, not even uh, permitting them to have a civilian nuclear enrichment program, which they do have some legitimate peaceful civilian uses for. Um, and uh, that demand is a non-starter for Iran. And so if you make that a precondition for negotiations to reach some deal, you won't actually get to the negotiations because that's a, stop, that's a deal breaker for Iran, which is why the Obama administration had it as their opening. You can keep a civilian nuclear program as long as you keep it under certain limits. So the maximum pressure program was supposed to coerce Iran lower their violence in the region, undermine their capacity to support proxies, and um, roll back their nuclear program. Uh, the exact opposite has happened for each of those objectives. So it's worse than just a failure. It's not that the maximum pressure failed. It's that it brought the exact opposite set of results than it was supposed to. For uh, the incoming Biden administration, I, I know that we're still in early days of of planning who's going to fill out various posts, but who's on the bench? Well, I'll leave names aside because they're st they, they really are so still throwing a lot of names out there and we don't quite know. But what I can say is that so far, the names and the lists that we have that suggest that this is who the Biden administration will be bringing into foreign policy and national security positions are not encouraging if you're someone who thinks U.S. foreign policy is in need of a big rethink, you know, if you want to step away from the status quo, if you think we've been overengaged and overextended in all of these wars, think we've been overly interventionist and activist, not just in the Middle East but in Europe and Asia, um, you know, someone who wants that kind of change in U.S. foreign policy is going to be disappointed by this this crew, because I think they're basically establishment people. Uh, and uh, they do not represent a, a clear shift. Nobody in there that I can see is determined to make these kinds of changes in foreign policy. They might be sympathetic with some of them. But really, big changes only come in foreign policy from a determined plan to accomplish specific objectives. And unless you're eager to roll it back, I don't think it will. Policy inertia will continue to characterize the way U.S. foreign policy is run. John Glazer directs foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.